Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. You can call it whatever you like, but that's what we call it. My name is David Grigg and I'm joined as always by my co-host, the globe-trotting Perry Middlemiss. So how are you, Perry, and where have you been since our last episode? Oh, hello, David. I think I'm starting to get my brain back together. Um, I was in Morocco for uh, two and a half, almost three weeks. Strange place to go to, you might say. Yeah, Morocco, why did you go but, there? Uh, well, it's always been it's always been one of those ones, those countries that it's been calling my wife and I for some reason or other, and um, we both uh, had a uh, desire to go, uh, and we have had a desire to go for some time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we got caught up, of course, in the old uh, uh, gl- uh, global pandemic with COVID nineteen and not being able to get there when we wanted to about three or four years ago, and. So we finally took the opportunity uh, to to go. We booked this about 12 months ago, hoping that everything would still be okay. And yes, it all came through. Uh, it, uh, shall I say, it was an experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, oddly enough, um, there were occasions when I was sitting on the bus because we did a, it was a, it was a bus tour around Morocco. It's not one of those countries that I would like to just go and travel to on my own. Firstly, I'm getting a bit too old for that sort of lark. Um, and secondly, it's a country where not everybody speaks English. There's a lot of people that do, but maybe not quite enough. Mm. And so it was better that we went on a guided tour, which we did with an Australian tour company with a whole bunch of other Australians, which made life very interesting. Mm. Um, in it, in in a good way, in a good mm. way. Morocco's, Morocco's not one of those countries that, people go to for the first thing, you know, there aren't all that many people that are going to say, I want to go overseas for a holiday. Oh, no, I'll go to Morocco. Mm. Nah. You're basically, yeah. all these people, are people they've travelled all over the place and they've also travelled a lot with this particular company. So uh, they knew what they were doing. Uh, they were seasoned travellers and in general, the bulk of us got along pretty damn well. Mm, so that's uh, good. it was great. But the interesting thing, interesting thing about Morocco is there were on occasions where you could doze off on the bus uh, and wake up and look out the window and think, oh, what am I, what am I doing in Australia? I thought I was in Morocco. <laughs> there was a lot of places around where it was sort of that semi-arid, semi-desert sort of countryside uh, where it looked very much like Australia. Mm, interesting. Very, very, very dry. But um, a lovely place, really enjoyed it. Uh, would hardly recommend it to anybody, uh, but by God, it's a long way away. Mm, yeah, uh, because it was um, for various reasons. Door to door on the way over was 38 hours. Oh, wow. So we were a bit shattered mm. by the time we got there and was probably 34 on the way back. Mm. Because we had to go from Melbourne up through Sydney, which was always a bit of a nuisance because it adds three or four hours to the trip. But we were just shattered and we got back at the end of last week and we're still basically getting over it about three or four days later, I think. Um, Well, it took two days to do the washing. (laughs) For one thing, you've got to wash everything that you've taken with you. So that's Central Australia. Anyway, look, really enjoyed it. Great. Felt, had had a wonderful time. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, looking forward to my next one, yeah, which extra, will be in about yeah. uh, five five months. I'm off to India for uh, three weeks in, um, in in October. 
Got to get to these places while I've still got enough energy to be able to do it, David. Oh, that um, makes sense. Not going to happen for too much longer, so um, we're trying to do the hard ones while we still can. Mm. Oh, short, short, sharp trips. You know, yeah. not not six weeks or something, just sort of three and um, mm. in and out and doing that. So yeah. anyway, Charlie, that's what I am. And how, how have you been? Oh, I've had a few ups and downs, but uh, I haven't been travelling anywhere the way you have. So nothing very exciting to report. So. Oh. Okay. Oh, we've always. Oh, well. we, you know, we, I can report. I guess we we've had three huge trees chopped down in our in our backyard. Three big cypress trees, and okay. um, it was quite a quite an exercise to, uh, well. to have that done. And, uh, had they uh, just reached the end of their their time and gotten um, too big and uh, oh, yeah. starting to their re- roots starting to you know interfere with the house and the neighbours sewerage and you know a whole lot of things so they were just they've become too big and sometimes they become too big for a uh, suburban backyard and you really have no choice but to take them down to save your house at a later well, date that's exactly right because the last thing you last thing you want is to um, have a big storm come through and knock one of them down and oh, take yeah, out the back of your house. Yeah. Well, we we figured out my my son-in-law wants the uh, wants the wood from it, and so we right. did we did for for firewood once it's dried out. Um, and we figured out we did a bit of a calculation. We figured out that it must be close on two tons of wood per tree. Whoa! So that's a lot of wood. He's going that's to have a to lot move. of wood. He's 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 going to have to do a lot of moving and, and then splitting. Uh, yeah. I should think that should keep him in firewood for quite some time. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was uh, the must, excitement here. Mm. Well, it must must make a fair bit of a change to your backyard. It you're certainly does. To, um, a lot more light, that's for sure. Uh, well, yes, but you've also, I suppose, you're going to be replacing them with something. Uh, nothing that big, that's for sure. The, the, no, the, no, the no, funny no. the funny thing was that when it was all done, we we went out one night the night after, and um, nearby there's a house just sort of diagonally over our back fence that's being re- being built they knocked down the house that was there and they're building this new house and it's, so it's got a frame of of joists where the roof is going to be um mm. and every joist was populated by birds staring at us it was like out of the hitchcock movie <laughs> you know you bastards you've chopped down our homes <laughs> so we sort of felt well bad. yeah we sort of felt sad. bad but yeah it's look. It's very sad when you have to do that, but there are just sometimes in suburban backyards where you really just don't have a choice. No, that's right. We didn't have and a the, choice. The, yeah. the 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 trees have just got to their end of their lifespan, and sometimes they just have to come down. Yeah, well, um, they did. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. Anyway, there All we right. are. That was that. Now, do we want okay. to talk about some more general news? I... Well, we can talk about some literature news. Yes, yes David. Martin a... Amis has died, and I have to say, I. Know very little about Martin Amis other than the fact that he's Kingsley Amis's son. Um, I've read none of his books, but you've read a couple of his books, I think. I've read a couple. Um, Time's Arrow, uh, which is really a. Um, uh, I mean, there's been a bit of a discussion around it on the interwebs um, just lately because of his death, and some people are basically saying that uh, Time's Arrow, which is a, as far as I can recall, a detective novel told backwards in time. Uh, so a bit like Counter Clock World by Dick and a fair number of other um, stories that people are bringing up. It's not a wasn't a new uh, concept when he wrote it. Um, well, probably in the eighties, I think. But uh, it still was quite an interesting, uh, interesting way of handling it, and it could very easily uh, conceive it of being a, um, a science fiction. 
uh, science fiction novel. I don't believe that he wrote anything that you could point at directly and say, yep, that's absolutely utterly science fiction. His father, of course, wrote um, a couple. Uh, the major one that I can think of is The Alteration yes. by Kingsley Amos, which is an excellent book uh, of uh, alternate history. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, uh, that. That was quite good. I would, I believe that um, Amos used to read a lot of science fiction in his early days. This is Martin Amos. Mm. used to lot, read a lot of science fiction in his early days, but turned over towards general literature later. Mm. Um, and was a big friend of people like um, James Ballard and uh, people of that ilk. And uh, I came across and read just re- yesterday or over the weekend a an appreciation of Ballard that Amos wrote about 10, 12 years ago, just after uh, Ballard died. And uh, he really liked um, Ballard's work and really liked his stuff, uh, thought that he was one of the most innovative um, uh, writers of any genre uh, in English at, at that time. But Martin Amis was basically mainly re- be remembered as one of those uh, group of uh, writers that came out all sort of together um, uh, in around about the 70s and 80s. And I'm talking about people like Julian Barnes, uh, Salman Rushdie, Ian McEwan, um, uh, Chap- Bruce Chatwin, as well. Uh, so he was in that sort of ilk uh, and with all of those sorts of people. Uh, he was a big friend of uh, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Hitchens died of esophageal cancer about 12 years ago. And unfortunately, Martin Amos has also died of the same thing. So probably Life, a smoking... Lifelong related, smoker, smoking, I believe, yeah. Uh, yeah, smoking-related uh, disease. Mm. Um, and so his major novels that people are talking about are Money and London Fields, uh, both of which are considered to be some of the best uh, English novels published in the second half of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, So uh, I think a lot of people will go back and reread his stuff. He hasn't done a lot lot of big fiction novels for the last, um, say, 10, 15 years, I don't think. Um, uh, He was big in the, as I said, in the 70s, uh, 70s, 80s and early 90s and then sort of started to fade out a bit. But he was also re- re- renowned as a major critic and uh, has written um, uh, some wonderful uh, wonderful critical pieces. And if you go hunting around on the web, you'll find a number of links to some of the work that he has uh, he has done. And uh, he, had a, he had a very, very intelligent and very literate turn of phrase about him. And... Uh, I was reading a piece by um, Jeff Dyer, uh, who's a very good English critic. Uh, I I spoke about Jeff Dyer's work um, when uh, we did the piece on Solaris, because he wrote um, Zona uh, about watching the, oh, yes. the film of uh, Solaris. Uh, I was, uh, if you recall, I was reading that book while I was watching the film itself, mm. and that was quite a a really weird and strange experience. But anyway, Dyer was a, a great admirer of Martin Amos's work and has written a piece um, about him. Um, and so he was he was well-known and well-liked. And um, uh, although he did have a big falling out with Julian Barnes, I believe, over some petty little thing, and, and then he moved to New York and got his teeth fixed, and the um, which, you know, you earn enough money, you might as well get your teeth fixed, why not? 
And uh, the the British critics all just got stuck into him in a big way for mm. no particular reason. So, <laughs> you know, they, uh, they 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 talk about Australia where they chop down tall poppies, but um, uh, let me tell you, I think we learned it from the British. Yeah, that's, that's the right. case. Mm. Uh, because they really get stuck into uh, people as well, given any opportunity at all. Mm. Anyway, so um, he's gone, uh, and that might uh, be... Might be time to reread this. One of my friends in a um, uh, fairly dark moment said the one good thing about an author dying is at least you can catch up. And that is one that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Not the best, but yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know. Anyway, there we go. There so I, I might have to go back and I've got a few of his novels up on the shelf that I've I've never read. Uh, so I should actually get back and have a look at them. and you know, I should probably it's... actually find one of them and read them, yeah. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. Go back and have a look at something mm. and then you'll think, well, how did I miss this guy yeah, all yeah. this time? Anyway, yep. right, uh, go. he's gone. There we yeah. are. All right. In other news, uh, we have the Nebula Awards uh, presented in the last ooh, couple of weeks. I can't remember exactly when. Yep. Sometime when I was away, and of course that's a complete another blur to me now. So um, it was sometime when I was away. Uh, now, these are the um, sort of, if you like, uh, the second or equal first, depending on which way you want to look at it, major awards in the science fiction and fantasy genres. Uh, the Nebula Awards are, produ- are presented by the SFWA, which is the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association. I think they've expanded it to get rid of America and change the A to Association rather than Writers of America now, but... Anyway, I think they're trying to expand their mm. um, their um, uh, compass because there are so many members of the organisation who no longer live, who, who don't live um, in the US that uh, they had to make it a bit more universal. Mm. So anyway, um, the winners, David, the novel Babel by R.F. Quang, which you um, uh, have enjoyed and which I'm part of the way through and, uh, and also enjoying. Uh, so that's good from... That yep, if you like good. that. Uh, the winner of the novella, even though I knew the end, by C.L. Polk. I have read this, and I will be talking about this a bit later on in this episode, so I won't say anything more about this now. Novelette. If you find yourself speaking to God, address God with the informal you, by John Chu. Gone are the days of short um, uh, titles, <laughs> um, uh, David, uh, in the main. Although, when we come to the short story... Uh, that was one by Rabbit Test by Samantha Mills. I've not, I have read neither of the novelette nor short story, though I hope to be able to get to those uh, shortly. Uh, didn't have really good access to any of these uh, when I was overseas, mm. so um, I will get to, get to them now that I'm back. You will be able to find um, the novelette and short story out there somewhere with links with, uh, without too much trouble and um, because I think they were both published in uh, an electronic publication uh, so it will make them available. So that's a bit of a point to what might be coming up with the Hugo Awards a bit later on this year mm. but mm. as we've also mentioned because the Hugo Awards are going to be presented at the World Science Fiction Convention, which is being held in China this year, uh, we really don't know what the Hugo Awards are going to look like. Mm. It could be anything. Very interesting. So um, uh, I've got, I've had, I put my nominations in. 
whether there's um, uh, whether any of them will get up. We just don't know, mm. David, but we shall find out. Yeah. I'm expecting actually that the um, uh, I'm expecting that the Hugo ballot will be out within the next month uh, because the um, um, was it's been two or three weeks now since the nominations closed, mm. and generally the holdup is. Uh, the acceptance of the nomination by the authors because they have to get in contact with everybody to say, do you want this story to appear? Mm. Because an author is, can, of course, refuse um, a nomination if they so choose uh, and has happened uh, for various reasons. Uh, and any of, them, any of those reasons are legitimate. But the organisers have to check with everybody to make sure that all the authors are okay with the uh, stories and books appearing, uh, well, was that films and everything else? That so many of them all um, all appearing, and that's a fair amount of work. Mm. And we'll have to wait and see. So, I'm ex- but I'm expecting it in the next couple of weeks. So we'll see. Talk about that maybe next episode or the episode after. Sure. Uh, other bit of news: Miles Franklin Award long list. Yes. Uh, this Miles Franklin Award is the major uh, Australian literary award. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's the major Australian yeah, yeah, sure. award. Be- been running since the late 1950s based on um, uh, a stipulation set out in the will of Miles um, uh, Franklin, uh, offering a prize for the best uh, piece of fiction, the best work, maybe. Mm. Uh, I think there's been a... I'm pretty certain there's been a... Uh, drama script that has been nominated, but mostly the novels. Mm. And I don't know whether there's been any collections of short stories. But anyway, generally they come across as novels uh, that are being um, uh, presented, but they have to uh, represent some form of Australian life. So in other words, there's got to be something specific, specifically Australian about them. Mm. Now that, does, that means, though, that the, the author of these does not necessarily have to be an Australian. Mm. There's been at least one English uh, or British writer who's been nominated uh, because um, they wrote a book about uh, the passage of people from England to Australia uh, in the 1800s. And so basically, Mm. it's part of Australian life. And therefore, it fit the criteria. Mm. And it was good enough. I think it was English passengers, which had also been nominated for a um, uh, Booker Prize, but don't quote me on that because mm. I didn't actually go checking that out. Mm. Anyway, the major thing about the long list, I'll get to, I'll get to this, get David, to long list. get around to getting into this, is that there are two books on this that we've actually discussed on the podcast. Yeah. The first of these is Robbie Arnott's Limberlost yep. from Text Publishing, which you and I both thought was absolutely fantastic, yep. a cracker. Yep. And, the, and the other one was Jessica Owl's Cold Enough for Snow from Giramondo Publishing, which I wasn't so enamoured with. I liked it up to a certain point, but only up to a certain yeah. point. Uh, I can certainly understand why people would read it and go, this is fantastic, it's absolutely wonderful, but it doesn't really go anywhere mm. for me. Mm. So anyway... Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything else. No, I couldn't um, see anything else. I could list a whole lot. Of you. There's, no, no, there's, there's 11 on them. I'll, uh, I'll put a link uh, in the list. show notes. Don't worry. 
All right, okay, that's probably about the best. But it's just good to see that Robbie Arnott's Limberlost is there. Uh, the winner of the award will be announced on the 25th of July, 2023. Sometime or other, they're going to whittle this 11 down to a smaller number, five or six, for the shortlist. And when that happens, we'll um, uh, announce that. Sure. So we're hoping that um, uh, our mate Robbie mm. uh, is on that shortlist. We uh, expect and hope that uh, he will be. Mm. The other piece of news was the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, which were announced, I think, last night, uh, our time. So that would be um, um, Monday, the 22nd of uh, uh, of May. Yep. Now, uh, uh, this has come up with some rather interesting results. Uh, the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction went to Women I Know by uh, Katarina Gibson, a... Uh, I think a collection of stories, so um, uh, that hasn't appeared on the Miles Franklin list. The Douglas Stewart Prize for Nonfiction was uh, was won by We Come From This Place by Deborah Dank. Remember that title for a very good reason. Uh, the Patricia Wrightson Prize for Children's Literature went to The First Scientist, Deadly in- uh, Inventions and Innovations from Australia's First Peoples by Corey Tutt and Black Douglas. The Ethel Turner Prize for Young People's Literature went to The Upwelling by Lister Rose. Mm. The Indigenous Writers Prize went to We Come From This Place mm. by Deborah Dank, so okay. that's two. The UTS Glenda Adams Award for New Writing went to We Come From This oh, Place this by Deborah Dank, well. so that's three. Mm. And uh, the New South Wales Premier's Awards also have a book of the year, so basically the the, the best of all the categories, which was won by We Come From This Place. Oh, well, better, we better Dan. go hunt this book up. We had better go hunt this book mm-hmm. up because that's four. Wow. Four prizes. This has never been done before wow. in the New South Wales Premier's um, uh, Awards. Uh, according to uh, general reports that I'm reading in the papers um, this morning, uh, a lot of commentators saying that she writes absolutely beautifully. So... That is one that we're going to have to take on board and track down, David, and have a bit of a read-off. So it is a non-fiction piece, uh, and uh, Deborah Dank is an Indigenous writer, uh, and so we'll have to have a look at yeah, it. Yeah, it looks good. It deserves attention. Hmm. If you get that much, um, if you, somebody wins that many awards all in one go, pretty, the book deserves attention. Pretty good sign, yeah. All hmm. right. Okay, and that's about it, I think. That's quite a lot. Well, it is quite a lot, but um, we're in that sort of phase where yeah, it's the war um, season, isn't it? lots of lots of awards are starting to crop up, yeah. um, and uh, you know people are. It's cold. We're getting into winter, so people are deciding they want to sit at home and uh, read books, which is always a good thing. Mm. And um, so, yep, there you go. It's good. It's good to see these uh, awards cropping up, and new authors and new books that we hadn't heard of uh, making themselves visible, so that we can go out and. Track them down, indeed, David. Indeed, indeed. Mm. All right, so we roll into what we've been reading lately? Yeah, okay, let's yeah. do that. Uh, and in my oh. case, very little. <laughs> but oh, okay, oh, okay. Why, is, why, why is that? I what's, really uh, don't know. My, my, reading, my reading pace has just slowed almost to nothing this year. You, I mean, normally I set the uh, uh, a Goodreads you know, target. You can set the target reading challenge mm. each year. And normally I set mine at 80 or 85 or something. 
look, I'll be I'll be lucky to to get to sixty this year. I reckon sixty books. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know what it is. I just really find it hard to read to, to get stuck into reading. So anyway, that's that's, that's just just me. Well, well, I might get back. I was into it. I was doing really well in January and February, and then slowed right down in March. Uh, picked up a bit in April and picking up a bit more in May. Um, I'm on track uh, for mine. I I set myself a target of 100 this year, and I'm on track for that of sort of up around about 43, 44 so far. Mm. Um, and um, but need to need to put the foot down a little bit because there's a lot coming up uh, that uh, I'm going to be wanting to read, and it's all going to be read in a short period of time. So mm. anyway, well, that's okay. We'll it's we'll it, it's it's winter. I'm just going to sit at home and yeah, in front of the fire and glass of red and read a book. Sounds like a good thing very to, sensible. to do to me. Yeah. All right, well, tell us about the, what you've been reading. Right, okay. Well, I've, um, I jump around all over the place, as you know. And the first uh, book that I'm going to be talking about here is uh, a crime novel called Five Decembers by James Kestrel. Now, this was the winner of the 2022 Edgar Award for Best Novel, Edgar Awards, um, the, named after Edgar Allan Poe, and it's uh, given out by a major um, group of uh, crime, crime writing people in the US each year. It's generally a very good indicator of uh, what's best in the field, and it come, they keep coming up with uh, people that I hadn't heard of before, and James Kestrel is one of them. So I went to try and track down to find out a little bit more about James Kestrel, and I can't find out anything. I mean, there's maybe a pseudonym. A, publish, a publisher's blurb. There's a very interesting photo of him on the publisher's website where you can't see his face. It's a photo of him with his hand over his face looking away. Mm. And, you know, that's generally indicative of the fact that um, they don't want you to know who no, it, it is. It might be a pseudonym, uh, yes. So, so I, think this, I think this may well be a pseudonym. I mean, the guy writes really, really well, and this is theoretically a debut novel. So if he really is James Kestrel, as he says, and this is a debut novel, he's done very, very well. Yeah, okay. this, is a book that, this is a book that comes from Hard Case Crime, and I think I'd better give you a bit of an intro to this Hard Case Crime first so that you, you know um, what sort of genre we're coming from here. So the Hard Case Crime uh, is an American imprint uh, publishers of hard-boiled crime novels founded in 2004 by Charles Adai and Adai? Adai and Max Phillips. And their aim is to recreate the editorial form, flavour and content of paperback crime novels of the 1940s and 1950s. Now, they've published novels by people such as Stephen King, Harlan Ellison, uh, James M. Cain, Donald E. Westlake, uh, Robert Silverberg and Lawrence Block, amongst many, many others. Now, some of their publications are straight new novels, like the Stephen King novels. The three I think that he's done are all um, um, are all uh, uh, all new. Some of them are reprints, and some of them haven't been reprinted for like forty odd years, forty fifty years. And some of the first publications of novels by well-known authors that have never seen the light of day before, but have been discovered in an author's author's archive. Uh, the quality, uh, the quality of all these books is high, uh, and the books are all enjoyable. This, they've published about ooh, 150 since 2004, so they're publishing one a month thereabouts. 
which is a pretty good schedule and not too bad. And uh, the the nice the nice paper, but they're just standard sort of small paperback sizes, uh, and they look like the the books from the nineteen forties and nineteen um, fifties. Uh, Same sort of noirish pulpish covers on them which um uh, are all pretty good uh and look I, I i just think i think they've found a, a really good formula uh and uh, they seem to be producing really wonderful stuff hmm. including this one okay but let me tell you about it all right so this start this book starts in december 1941 and world war one veteran joe mcgrady is working as a detective in uh, Honolulu in Hawaii when he's sent to investigate the death of a young man uh, who's been found strung up and gutted yeah. uh, in a remote shack. It's a fairly um, confronting image, basically, because basically, literally, he's been gutted like a sheep. Um, now, it soon, as it becomes, soon, be- soon becomes clear that this is not a normal murder case, even, even, if, even if the method was of a clue about all this. Um, as the victim we later on discover is the nephew of a uh, very high-ranking U.S. admiral on the island. And there's also another murder victim in the shack, and this is a young Japanese woman. Now, we're in December 1941 when there are tensions between the U.S. and Japan uh, leading up to To Pearl Harbor. What is going to be the Mm. attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, we're talking early December 1941, because Attack on Pearl Harbor was very early in, de- in December. So McGrady's basically thrown this um, uh, particular case. Uh, his boss doesn't want him to have it. Uh, they wa- his boss wants to sort of get over it very quickly, but because of the connection to the US Admiral, uh, they can't really sweep it under the carpet, so they have to basically do something with it. Uh, and as they start following things around, it becomes obvious that it looks like the killer has left Honolulu and taken off on a um, a flight over to Hong Kong. So McGrady is sent to Hong Kong to follow the follow this uh, murder suspect's trail, and arrives there the day before the Japanese invade. Unfortunately, he isn't able to continue his uh, investigation because he's um, captured by the Japanese and thrown into a prisoner of war camp and transported to Japan, where supposedly he is going to spend um, either the rest of his life or the rest of the war in a sort of uh, slave labour camp of some some description. But he's only there in Japan for a day or two when he's contacted by somebody who extracts him from the camp. He doesn't know what's going on until it's explained to him that the gentleman that's doing it is a high-ranking foreign affairs um, official in the ja- in the Japanese government, and the young girl who died in the shack was related to him. Uh, and so this Japanese gentleman realizes that there's absolutely no way that. Um, McGrady can, can can continue his investigation while the war's going on. So he sets about ensuring that McGrady is going to survive the war and that when it, um, when it completes, uh, he can continue his investigation and find out what happens. And so what we get is uh, a story that covers a five-year period, namely the five Decembers of the title. And it carries all the way right through to 
McGrady coming out at the end of the war and continuing his investigation. This is a this is a bloody good book. I really enjoyed this book a lot. Um, uh, it's got a lot of uh, that sort of noirish sort of feel that you would expect from um, these particular publishers and this type of uh, crime novel. But it also has a bit of a uh, a war and adventure genres uh, thrown into it. Uh, and it's really an intriguing novel uh, and certainly worthwhile reading. And I I just breezed through this without any problems, liked it liked it a lot. And uh, gave it 4.4 out of 5, yeah, David. So um, it's got to be one of my high-ranking crime novels of the year, I think, yeah. this one. So um, yeah, I'm go. glad I found it. And um, uh, I thank uh, the Edgar Award uh, people for giving it the best novel for 2022. Yeah, so this it right. is a novel from 21, mm-hmm. so it's a couple of years old, but uh, certainly worthwhile checking out. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you're certainly right about their covers. They, they, they really have that pulp. Pulp oh, uh, yeah, fiction look, don't they? I, I found oh, they're wonderful. This one. You know? yeah, that's right. Oh, they really are wonderful, yeah, yeah. and uh, the titles are great. And yeah. um, uh, it's just, it's just good to see somebody realizing that there was a lot of worth in that stuff from the forties and fifties. Sure, there was a lot of pulp junk that was put out from a lot of house, uh, from a lot of publishers, pulp publishers that used to have house names that would just churn them out like it was going out of style. But even if you're churning out stuff every all the time, sooner or later there's got to be one or two of them are going to come up and go, whoa, yeah. this one stands out above the ruck. Um, and while the writers were trying to earn a buck by, by writing as much as they possibly could, every now and again, any good writer is going to write a good book. Mm. And uh, if they stand out, so these guys are trying to uh, recreate that by putting out only good books mm. and they seem to be ach- achieving that, that goal. Oh, very good. Very good. All right, well, I'm going to roll on to a book. Uh, I've talked about how slow my reading is at the moment, so th- I've actually dug back into my archives, and this is a book I read several months ago. But uh, I haven't talked about it on the podcast, so I thought it would be useful to add to today's mix. So this is a non-fiction book called Unknown Shore by Robert Ruby, and it's subtitled The Lost History of England's Arctic Colony. Uh, so it's a very interesting piece of uh, history writing, and it's told on uh, on three levels, uh, which is which is interesting in itself. So the first, the furthest back in time, is the story of Martin Frobisher in Elizabethan England in the 1570s, and he's persuaded that there's a way to reach China, then called Cathay, by sailing over the top of North America. Now, England had largely been excluded from the exploitation of the New World through a series of papal directives, which basically carved up the New World between Spain and Portugal. And England was at the time a relatively minor power and was at odds with the papacy because of Henry VIII's split with Rome a generation before. So Frobisher manages to convince enough investors and to gain the blessing of Queen Elizabeth to equip a few ships and set off. So he's looking for the Northwest Passage, as it's sometimes known. The second level to the story is that of the American Charles Francis Hall in 1859, so centuries later. A journalist and publisher, Hall, had long been fascinated by stories of the Arctic and in particular became obsessed with trying to find out what had happened to the Franklin Expedition, which was a much later attempt by Britain to find this mythical Northwest Passage. Franklin and his crew never returned and mystery surrounded what, what happened to them. There was no report back as to what had happened. 
So 14 years later, after that, Charles Hall believed that there was still a chance that at least some of Franklin's men might have survived in the north and been taken in by the local natives of the area, then known as Eskimos, although we now more properly call them Inuit. So Hall managed to raise enough money and supplies to set off north, but he couldn't afford his own ship, so he took passage on a whaler. Now, the third level of the story is that of the author himself, Robert Ruby, who visited these areas of interest and spent considerable time with the Inuit to research the book. It's a really, it's a fascinating story. It's full of adventure and excitement. It's very well written. Now, going back to the very first level, Martin Frobisher failed, of course, to find a passage to India, to, sorry, a passage to China in the far north, because one doesn't exist. Well, at least it didn't back then. But in his explorations, he landed at several places. He treated the Inuit as savages and failed to learn anything from them at all about survival in the north. He kidnapped an Inuit man, a woman and her child and took them back to England, where unfortunately they soon died. So it's still quite remarkable to think of Eskimos being in England in the Elizabethan era. However, during their initial voyage, one of Frobisher's men picked up a large black stone on one of the shores that they visited. The collection of this stone triggered off a series of further expeditions and disasters because a dubious, a very dubious assay of its material back in England suggested that it was rich in gold. Spoiler, it wasn't. But Frobisher's interest in that of Queen Elizabeth turned quickly to the idea of making a fortune by mining this black rock from the Arctic. Further expeditions were mounted and a short-lived mining colony established on a small island just off what we now know as Canada's Baffin Island. So that's that furthest back level. Now we come to the second level. Charles Hall in the 1800s went to try to find the Franklin expedition. And he had some success in finding traces of Frobisher's early expeditions, but found very little of use about Captain Franklin's doomed mission. But he at least was prepared to listen to, was prepared to listen to the Inuit, follow their guidance and credit what they said. But he treated them as though they were children. There's a particular passage I'm going to quote, which I was struck by, where he refers to the Inuit people who had taken him in and enabled him to survive, when otherwise he would certainly have died. And he says, the, the book says, he was Father Hall, and he described him as, as he described himself. They were his children, and he wished them to obey him. They had fed, clothed, and housed him, yet he considered them the dependents. <laughs> so you have to shake your head at this sort yeah. of ignorance. Anyway, but Robert Ruby is a much more enlightened you know, person who who looking at all this, and he really did rely on the Inuit and credited them for uh, being able to carry out his research. So each of these three interleaved stories is very well done and full of interest and unexpected turns. So it's, it's a very, very, an excellent book. I, I recommend it. Sounds good. Yeah, it is good. Uh, I'm going to go from that to something... <laughs> Completely at the other end of the scale here, David. That's all right. Um, I'm looking at uh, a fantasy novella uh, called A Mirror Mended by Alex E. Harrow. This is the second in the author's Fractured Fable series of novellas and uh, is and has been um, uh, nominated for the 2023 Locus Award for Best Novella. Now, you and I will remember that uh, we talked about the 2021 novella A Spindle Splintered by this particular author, and this is the sequel to that novella. Now, the earlier one was based around the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale uh, with the, the story's protagonist, that original story and this story's protagonist, 
Zinnia Gray, who travels to various versions of the story across the multiverse, rescuing the princesses where, where she can. Now, this new novella finds Gray continuing her work with Sleeping Beauty at the beginning of the story, and she finishes off one particular adventure, and she chances to look into a mirror and seems to see somebody looking back at her. And before she knows it, she's pulled through the mirror and finds herself dealing and looking at Snow White's evil queen. Um, and Snow White's evil queen has somehow or other been able to determine that um, Zinnia Gray is doing this work with the, um, uh, the, the Sleeping Beauties and has also determined that uh, her, that is the evil queen's future, does not look all that good and has decided that she really needs to be able to change things. And the only way that she's going to be able to do that is to obtain the services of Zinnia Gray. Now, because the evil queen's got such a bad reputation, Grey is not going to just go, oh, yeah, I'll drop in and, you know, lend you a hand. So she's grabbed Grey and basically says, well, you, you know, you've pretty much got to help me out here. Uh, I've got a story that I want to have go a different way. And you find out that the evil queen is really badly done by in the, um, uh, in the fairy tales. Because firstly, she doesn't have a name. All she has is she's referred to as the evil queen, and that's basically it. You know, there's there's nothing, there's, doesn't have any name at all. So, uh, so Zinnia basically ends up naming her and helping her out. Uh, and this is an actually another interesting um, uh, variation on this idea of reimagining fairy tales from the past and utilizing the structure of them to tell a sort of different story, but also to look at them from a different point of view because we've already ever seen one thing as good on one side and evil on the other and as most of us will be aware that isn't the way that the real world works it's always a uh, shades of gray <coughs> and also um, people can have uh, fairly bad uh, reputations that have been thrust upon them not necessarily earned anyway so while this particular novella doesn't really have the freshness and originality of that original story, how could it? Because it's doing the same sort of thing, sort of sort of things doing over again. I still think it shows that Harrow is one of the brightest voices in this particular field, and I thought uh, it was worthy uh, worthy of a read, and I would uh, recommend it to you, David. I seem to recall you liked a spindle. I did. Spindle, yes, I, think. I did. I think yeah, you I, would I like should follow up well. on this one. Yeah. I think you should follow up on this yeah. one. Uh, I gave it three point eight out of five. Yeah. So uh, the previous one I gave four point zero out of. Uh, out of five uh, so this one a little bit less but um, still I think it continues the story very very well yeah, that's good uh, I guess this whole idea of, of um, taking a, a well-known story and turning it around or looking at it from a different character's point of view has been done a few times I'm thinking of um, Wicked um, which was a novel by Gregory Maguire turned into a musical where it takes the point of view of the Wicked Witch of the West out of uh, The Wizard of Oz um, so yeah, it's 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 a clever. It can become a very clever uh, way of of looking at uh, an old story. So, we'll keep that in mind because there'll be another one coming up. Yeah, excellent. Sorry, you mean there's a sequel? No, there's another one that I'm going to be talking oh, about in the same on in this episode. Mode. All right, sure. In the same sort of mode. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to now move on to mine. Then uh, the uh, I'm going to talk about the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. This is. Uh, 
by an Australian author, Pip Williams. This is her debut novel. And it it cleverly entwines a feminist story into the factual history of the compilation of the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, which was an enormous effort which took over four decades, beginning in the late 1800s. So it's a, it's a fictional look at, at this, this history. So we're introduced to uh, the main character, Esme Nicholl, when she's a very young child. Her father, Henry Nicholl, is one of the scholars working in the scriptorium, which is where a lot of this dictionary work is done, but it was not really not much more than a large garden shed located in the grounds of Dr. James Murray, the editor of the, of the dictionary. Now, in the story, Esme's mother died in giving birth to her, and so she's been raised only by her father, though with a lot of help from Dr. Murray's servants, particularly the maid called Lizzie, who plays an important part in the story as Esme's friend and guide. So Esme grows up literally at the feet of the dictionary scholars in the scriptorium. She spends most of her time before she's old enough to go to school, crawling about under the tables and chairs where the scholars work. It's here that she picks up a slip of paper which has fallen off a desk, a slip with a definition of the word bondmaid. She's only just learning to read, so she has to spell it out letter by letter. Her father has told her that not, not every word sent in by volunteers will go into the Great Dictionary, and so she thinks that this is a discarded word, and she puts the slip into her pinny and takes it away. And this ties in cleverly with the, the true historical fact that Bondmaid was indeed accidentally omitted from the first edition of the dictionary. So this is the author's fictional explanation of where that word went. But over time, as she grows older, Esme keeps other discarded words and starts to become interested in which words are being left out of the dictionary, not by accident, but by a conscious choice of the scholars, who are all men. Unsurprisingly, many of the words left out this way deal with women, women's bodies and women's issues, and or are words considered to be obscene. When she becomes old enough, Esme sets out to collect such words herself. She keeps her notes in an old wooden trunk and scratches inside the lid the words, the Dictionary of Lost Words. Now, Esme's development as a character is full of interest, as is her life story, which isn't free from, from tragedy. Her struggles against the prevalent and unthinking misogyny of the times is a constant theme throughout the book. And these times also encompass the rise of the suffragette movement in England and the First World War, and the personal impact of these events on Esme is very well handled. And, of course, the background story of the compilation of the English Dictionary adds a great deal of fascination to the story. So I, I like this a great deal, and I'm keen to get hold of William's sub subsequent novel, which is not a sequel, but it's, it's in the same vein, as I understand it, which is called The Bookbinder of Jericho. So that's only recently come out, so I'd like to get hold of that too. So, yeah, recommend it. Uh, yes, I've uh, had a couple of friends that have read it and uh, hardly recommend this particular book. It's an interesting little um, side step away from um, uh, Winchester's, Simon Winchester's book, The Surgeon of Cowthorpe, which was, I think, made into um, um, or mostly adapted by Mel Gibson in... Um, uh, was it The Professor and the Madman, uh, the film? So uh, those, uh, those, I've read that book and I have seen the film. So it'd be interesting to um, uh, have a look at this and see another different version of uh, how things uh, how things happen. And it is it is good that we're getting this bit where um, people are looking at things in a sort of a different slant. And as we were just sort of saying earlier, um, finding a different perspective on what happened 
and it's not all straight down the line as we um, um, as as we may have thought. There are other interpretations of what's gone on um, in the past, and other interpretations of history and also of fable that we really need to be aware of. So you get a a wider a wider view, <clears throat> and that's very much what um, has happened here um, uh, with Nicola Griffith's new novel Spear uh, from last year, twenty twenty two. Uh, which is nominated for the 2023 Nebula and uh, Locus Awards for Best Novel. And frankly, if I'd uh, read this before my nominations went in, I would have put it onto the Hugo nomination ballot as well, uh, because I think it's a um, uh, quite an excellent book. It's a short novel, and it's not a novella, but it's close to a novella. It's about 160 170 pages, so it just sneaks past the novella size. So this is not one that is going to take up a huge amount of time. And really, I I think she's done an excellent job. Now, the first 40 or 50 pages of this, or maybe a bit less, maybe say 30, 40 pages, started out reminding me very much of the more philosophical parts of the Gwynzerzi books, to be frank. And And I was thinking, ooh, this is really good stuff. You know, um, but it, it slowly morphs into something else, but doesn't go completely away from that. And it's got a really good lyrical and mythical feel to it at the beginning, because it starts off <clears throat> dealing with an unnamed girl living uh, with a mother in the wilderness somewhere in a cave. Now, the girl's basically learning from her mother about how the world works just in this particular area, and she's learning... Um, uh, how nature sort of works, and she has sort of these interesting sort of abilities where she can sort of communicate and work out, work communicate with nature and work out what's going on around her. So she can um, basically pick up a piece of uh, wood and know where where the, where the tree came from, well, which tree it was, and how the tree is feeling, and from there to basically give her an out. Uh, spread spread her um, consciousness out to nature itself. Uh, but finally, one day she finds a dead body out in the snow, and this body's got um, armor. It's got a, um, uh, a sword with the tip chopped off. It's got a, hel- a helmet and a shield, and uh, basically a chainmail uh, cloak with uh, leather underneath. Um, she realises that you know she just doesn't want... She's really quite fascinated with all this stuff, so she collects it off the body. Uh, and uh, there's an interesting note that um, uh, she doesn't decide to bury the body, but she leaves it naked to nature so that it can go back to nature. In other words, so that the wild animals around can devour the body and basically reintegrate it back into nature again. Anyway, she takes all this uh, stuff back to the cave and then starts... Um, uh, cleaning it up because the sword's a real mess and um, uh, so is all the chainmail and all the rest. And her mother's distraught about the whole thing uh, because she's starting to realise that the daughter is getting to an age where she's going to leave. Um, and the daughter does do that, takes on the name of Peridur, P-E-R-E-D-U-R, and leaves home to seek her destiny in the court of Artos, uh, king of and after a while this I must have been slow when I was reading this David I didn't really quite pick up what was going on 
and I it took me a while to realise that I was dealing with a retelling of the Arthurian Grail quest, and that Peridor really is Percival, and that Artus, of course, is Arthur, and there's a, a version of Gwen, uh, Guinevere, and also Lancelot. And this is set in 6th century, or thereabouts, in, in Wales. And so she's... So the author here has completely sort of recast everything. If you know what's happening here, you can understand what 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 what's going on. But it's told from the point of view of Peridor, Percival, and how she starts to try and integrate and wants to become a member of the company. That is the company that do that looks after the king. So these are the knights of the round table, basically. By changing all of the names just enough putting it on a, in a Welsh setting, which is reasonable, reasonable enough or close enough to where you and I might have considered Camelite might have been situated. She's just changed it just enough to give you a sort of a very new and fresh look on how all this comes together. Peridor, of course, is gay, and so we're getting a queer retelling of, of everything that happens here with this particular with this particular quest. Now, a lot of uh, other authors who are writing this particular thing might have stretched this novel out to four, five hundred, or even six hundred pages because it's a fantasy novel. Let's chuck you know you know everything into it that we could possibly put in. But Griffith doesn't do that. She's paired it right back so that you've got the story and you've got enough of what's going on. Uh, she gives us everything that we need and nothing that we don't. And it's really a masterful achievement, this, I think, uh, being able to put all of this material into this size. Uh, you get to the end of it, and you think, oh, I wish this had actually gone on a bit longer. Doesn't happen with me all that often with fantasy novels, David, because normally I'm thinking, when the bloody hell is this going to end? And But uh, not with this one. And I gave this one four and a half out of five. I was uh, I was very impressed with this, and I, uh, I, can, I can recommend it. Hmm. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering whether um, anyone has yet tackled the idea of taking an existing legend, where which has a female character and make the character male. That would be an interesting turn well, would on be. things. Would I don't know that it's it would be. Uh, uh, not sure whether you get published these days, though. Well, yeah, It's just interesting just to see. You know, with the the gender reversals, whether someone has tried the opposite thing. Interesting. Anyway, well, David, your mission should you choose to accept? <laughs> yeah, I think my days of writing long fiction are probably gone by now. Anyway, right. never mind. All right, so I'm going to talk about uh, a crime novel. So you've you've been talking about uh, your uh, five Decembers. This is a, a crime novel too. This is Fire with Fire, which is the latest novel by Candice Fox. And she's probably my favourite Australian crime writer at the moment. Uh, I like her novels, which are set in Australia, most of all, such as her debut trilogy, Hades, Eden Fall. But she's also been writing some terrific thrillers set in the United States, which are all well worth reading. So, Fire with Fire. It starts with a dramatic rescue by a young woman of a drowning man just off the coast of California. After she drags him ashore, she sees that he's been very badly injured. Nevertheless, he fends off treatment and manages to get hold of the phone and gasps out a cryptic one-word message before lapsing into unconsciousness. 
So we have then go into the next scene, which is where we have a, an eager young woman, Lynette Lamb, who's just joined the Los Angeles Police Department after completing her training at the police academy. So it's the very first day in the job, and they show her where her locker is. And then after she's changed into her uniform, she's told to go up to see the boss. So she walks into the boss's office, and he tells her to sit down. And he tells her that she's been responsible, however, however unknowingly, for the exposure of a police officer who'd been working undercover for several years with a gang of criminals. And she's fired on the spot. First day on the job, she's fired on the spot. And it turns out the man saved from drowning at the start of the book was this officer, Charlie Hoskins, who managed to escape the criminals who were set, that, set to kill him, but not before they'd bashed and tortured him before he escaped. And it's at this point that a drama unfolds at the police forensic laboratory where a married couple driven to desperation by the lack of police investigation into the disappearance of their young daughter two years ago, occupy this laboratory and take several hostages. They demand that the police locate their daughter that very day or they'll start to destroy the evidence stored at the laboratory sample by sample. This threat is a... is a, it's very clever because this threat begins to open up deep rifts in the police force between the senior officers, whose prime responsibility is to ensure the safety of the hostages, and the working police people, who see the critical evidence which will resolve the cases on which they've worked so hard, being destroyed. The couple occupying the laboratory have somehow found out which case each sample is related to, and they announce before they destroy that sample, you know, this is associated with that particular case. So the police chief finds herself essentially having to fight mutiny in her ranks as sample after sample goes up in flames. Now, while all that's going on, Charlie Hoskins sets out to try to find out what did happen to the couple's daughter. But of course, the trail is now two years old. To his astonishment, he finds that Lynette Lamb, the dismissed rookie police officer, has tracked him down and insists on helping him in his investigation. So their relationship during the long, this very long day that they have and the way that they end up working effectively together as a team, despite obviously initial uh, hostility, is very cleverly done and very convincingly handled. But the tension mounts throughout, made more intense because the criminal gang from which Hoskins has, has escaped are intent on finding him again and killing him. And they make several attempts during the course of the novel. So the ending here isn't, certainly isn't one I saw coming, and there are a number of twists in the plot which I thought were very well done. My only criticism, if there is one, is that I felt a little more could have been done to put the reader into the minds of the desperate parents of the missing girl and, and how they came up with a plan to occupy the laboratory and do this. We didn't, don't get much of that at all, but that's, that's a quibble. So definitely recommend it. Okay. Yep, she's certainly um, one of the major crime writers working uh, in Australia at the moment. <clears throat> worthwhile uh, following I shall check that one out mm. now we've been uh, talking about um, queer retellings of uh, existing fables uh, there's also um, a thread inside the uh, uh, science fiction and fantasy genres of uh, queer tellings of stories which use uh, structures and concepts uh, that have been generally male-dominated in the past, uh, such as the case with uh, the next novella that I'm going to talk about, Even Though I Knew the End, by C. L. Polk. <clears throat> this 
uh, story has been nominated uh, for the 2023 Locus Award and is actually the winner, as I stated earlier on uh, in the episode, of the 2023 Nebula Award for Best Novel, no, Best Novella. Now, let me say up front that I don't really have any problem about mixing these genres. You know, here we have um, noir fiction uh, mixed with angles, um, uh, sorry, angels and, and demons. Uh, and nor do I have a problem about recasting classical stories to illustrate different points of view, because here we have a queer dark fantasy. But I really do want the author to be able to know what it is that they're doing and be able to handle it properly, uh, and not just to throw in elements all over the place to um, uh, in an attempt to be relevant. Uh, the problem with this the problem with this particular novella is that it utilizes a predictable plot. It tries too hard in the early stages to come across as something out of a 1940s pulp detective fiction novel. You know, there's too much, you know, um, knowing statements by the uh, protagonist and it just doesn't work um, for me. It just threw me out of it completely. It starts off well, it looks great, and then she tries to set up this sort of noirish feel and it just, you know, just, goes, just goes awry. Anyway, the main character, uh, Helen Brandt here, is a private detective with magical powers who who was at some time in the past uh, booted out of the Magicians' Union for committing an unforgivable act. We don't know what that act is, although we do find out later on what it was and why she was excommunicated. And she's hired by um, uh, this person called Marlowe, which is another throwback, which I wish people wouldn't do very often, uh, to um, uh, to Raymond Chandler, uh, hired by this person, Marlowe, uh, to look into what appears to be a ritual killing. Uh, and before long, she has run foul of the legitimate magicians who are also investigating this and the, subs- and the subsequent follow-up murders, because murders just keep on happening. But it all becomes very predictable, uh, and as the storyline progresses, you can see the wheels turning and the outcome slowly approaching, and you think, okay, it's going to go... No, it doesn't. Yeah, it goes there. It just goes exactly where you think it's supposed to going to go. Now, I'll give the author some points for uh, the attempt, but unfortunately, it just falls down in the execution. And uh, if they had worked on trying to get the plot a little bit more twisty and a little bit more unpredictable it might have been okay uh, but no nah, it just this one just doesn't work for me I don't really know why uh, this one the nebula award um, uh, I th- no I just I, I just can't see it it just doesn't do it for me I give this one 3.3 out of five mm. I liked uh, some of um, Polk's um, ideas about how to set it up and it had possibilities but to me, it just needed a big edit over the top to sort of say, nah, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. You need to work more here and work more there. Uh, hmm. Anyway. No, not everything works. Not everything works. No. This one, this one for me, didn't. didn't. Yeah, okay. All right, well, my last novel I'll talk about is um, a book called Red Team Blues by Corey Doctorow, uh, which has just come out. Uh, Corey Doctorow is a Canadian-born writer and blogger, who in recent times has been writing many, many articles focusing on the way huge corporations are destroying civil society and the planet, all in the name of profit. Um, they're always, 
all his writings are well worth following up just 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 on that basis but he also writes fiction and i've only read a couple of his novels before um down and out in the magic kingdom um and little brother um the latter in particular picks up on his political views and he shares his commitment to his sort of principles by releasing all of his work under a creative commons license without any digital rights management or drm and in fact, he refuses to let audiobooks of his work be sold through Audible because they insist on applying DRM to everything that they publish. He just won't let them publish his books. So let's, let's look at this particular book. I suppose you'd describe Red Team Blues as a techno-thriller. It's got all the elements of a private detective story with a tense plot, but the focus is on technology and the tools of the detective in this kind of book uh, laptops, mobile phones, networks, and software. The protagonist is uh, Martin Hench, who's a 67-year-old forensic accountant and security consultant, who, as the story opens, is largely retired and spends his time travelling around in a bus which has been converted into a luxury mobile home. He bought it off a rock star who was leaving the business, apparently. Now, as a software security consultant, Hench is usually on the red team, the group who try to break into systems to exploit to expose their vulnerabilities. The blue team plays defence and tries to harden their networks and systems against such attacks. The red team, Hench notes, always has the advantage, trying to be able to try all sorts of different attacks, whereas the blue team only has to make one mistake and they've lost. But, of course, this isn't really a game at all, and losing can lead to severe real-world consequences. So... Hench is contacted by an old friend, Danny Laser, who's been trying to set up a, he- a new cryptocurrency system, think Bitcoin, which doesn't eat, eat up vast amounts of computing power and electricity, as does Bitcoin and the rest of such systems. Now, Danny has illegally obtained some highly critical cryptographic keys, which would allow him, among other things, to rewrite the cryptocurrency ledger, something which is meant to be impossible. Now, the keys were on a laptop he'd placed in what was meant to be a highly secure facility. And the laptop had been modified so that no wireless or internet connection was physically possible on the device. And the laptop could only be opened up and used by someone possessing a unique hardware token, a small little device which uh, which gives access to it. Despite all these precautions, however, Danny's hardware token has been stolen by a pickpocket, and the laptop shortly afterwards disappears from the supposedly secure facility. Now, together, these two items could give the bad guys terribly dangerous control of software systems worldwide. So Hench sets out to find out who stole the token and the laptop before they, before they can put the stolen cryptographic keys to use. And he leverages his long experience and knowledge of computer systems. It's not long before he thinks he knows who the thieves are and where they're hiding. But there's more than one group of bad guys trying for the price and gruesome things happen. Worse, Martin Hench finds himself blamed for what's, been, what's happened and has to go on the run. And throughout all of this, Hench relies a great deal on his friends and contacts, including two very smart women who manage to, between them to pick him up and sort him, at, him out when things go badly wrong, which of course they do. So this was a real page-turner for me. I read it in a couple of days, and I enjoyed it a lot. I did feel a bit let down by the ending of the book, which I thought was a bit too tame and pat for some of the hazards that he faces earlier on. It's sort of, you know, it's a bit too easy at the end, I thought. I kept expecting one of those last-minute, ho-ho, you think the danger's over, but... moment. But 
in this case, it didn't happen. <laughs> it's, and to read this book, it certainly helps a great deal if you understand at least a little of the underlying technology behind the story. Otherwise, I think you'd definitely struggle. Not to mention missing little jokes like the name of Hench's bus, which is Unsalted Hash. But as a computer nerd myself from way back, I lapped it up. I, I really enjoyed it. So there you go. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. That's all my um, books. Wow, well, that's all yours. Well, I just want to finish off with um, some quick observations about a film that I saw on the plane. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, um, when uh, this is on the plane on the way back from uh, from Morocco, uh, interesting enough, uh, it had a little um, note on it saying that um, uh, a little warning before the film uh, was shown, saying that uh, it shows um, flight accidents and uh, 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 flight incidents and um, viewers of a nervous nature should not watch this. Uh, <laughs> should not watch this film, especially on on a on, on, a, on a flight. Well, okay, I think you'd have to be really pretty pretty bloody nervous because um, uh, you're not given very much time to actually um, digest anything in this in this particular um, movie. The one that I'm talking about is Top Gun Maverick uh, from last year, uh, starring Tom Cruise. Uh, this is this is a sequel to the original Top Gun from 1986, uh, and uh, in some ways you can see why Tom Cruise bothered, uh, why he wanted to make this, uh, get this film made. But by the end of it, I wonder whether he really, whether we really care whether he made it or not, because um, here we're presented with the same old tired storyline and characters. You know, the, the military command comes up with this impossible mission in enemy territory. They assemble a crew of possible participants and, and engage the only old guy still around who's dumb enough to teach them how to go about doing it. Military command hates him. The filmmakers love him. And these students are just so-so, you know, oh, you know, he's an old bastard, but, you know, that's all we've got. But they're great to love him in the end. Um, but, of course, the students all fail to make the grade, but the old guy, the old guy, he's the one that knows how to do all this and he shows them how it can be done and... Um, this is really paint by the numbers filmmaking, David. I mean, you just basically put everything together and just fill it in. Yeah. It's competent enough and it gets the job done, but oh my God, do we really have to wonder why the job had to be done in the first place? <laughs> it's just, oh, everything here is predictable, including some scenes. For, I, mean, I, I think I've seen the first film. I can't remember. I've seen scenes from the first film and I'm absolutely certain I saw a scene where Tom Cruise is on a motorcycle racing a jet as it's taking off. There's another one of those. Uh -huh. So that's predictable. There's basically the love interest. Look, his new girlfriend, who's supposed to be the old girlfriend, but I don't know, runs the local bar and uh, has a, uh, is a single mother and has a, the, 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 the kid, the child is disaffected and not terribly sure she likes Tom Cruise hanging around and, Oh my god! <laughs> the uh, basically the 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 rescue goat. Uh, well, look, the mission takes off. It all goes. Everything sort of goes well. And you know that somebody's going to die, but it's probably the one that you hated the most anyway. So that's okay. <clears throat> you know there's going to be a problem. You know there's going to be a rescue. You know they're all going to come back, and you know they're all going to be happily ever after and lots of cheering. How the hell this ever made the best film? nominee list at last year's Oscars is totally and utterly beside me, uh, beyond me. I just, I just don't understand this at all. 
And I suspect it might actually be the worst um, nominee in all of Oscar history, to be perfectly frank. There's probably been some worse I ones. I mentioned that. By God, by God, this is just <laughs> tedious. Um, look, okay. It's completely tedious the whole way through. I sat through it because I really just, my brain was dead by this stage, and it's about the only way you can really watch it. They're okay. There's some nice flying shots. That's it. Mm. Um, no. Nah. Mm. Don't bother. Yeah. Don't even bother to watch it when it's on stream. <laughs> no, well, I would not it's, like it to. It's really just going to be the waste of two hours of your life. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, to have some of these old guys are sort of revisiting um, the golden hits of the past. I'm wondering about um, the latest Indiana Jones movie, although I believe that that seems to be getting good mentions, but I haven't seen yeah, much of it. It's, yeah, it seems to be. I mean... Uh, what was it, the the one about the crystal skulls and the aliens I didn't think much of. Um, hmm. The uh, the first and the third of them. So this is number five, I think. Yeah. The first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, Last Crusade were both pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the second and fourth, yeah, not so flash. Maybe this is um, going to um, be one of those ones where the odd numbers are going to be the best. Maybe. And, uh, number five is going to be all right. Yeah. I'll go and see it. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably I'll, see it, yeah. I will go to the cinema and watch mm. Indiana Jones and just hope to hoping to God that it's better than number four. Mm. But uh, I'm glad I didn't pay money to go and see this uh, at the cinema. Uh, and I know a lot of people really liked it, but I don't know why. No, I really no, don't no, know Tom why Cruise they doesn't like Tom appeal. at all. No. no, it has no appeal to me at all. No. Anyway, there, there you we go. go. All right. Well, I so think... there, there we are. We're finished with finish on that um, uh, poor note. So I'm sorry about note. it. But I, thought, I thought that it needed to be reviewed and I thought something needed to be said about it. Oh, well, it's, it. Fine. And, um, it's fine. People need to be warned off even though it is almost a year old, this film. Huh. But there we are. Uh, Try and stay away from it. All right. Well, I think that's probably uh, covered us for the day. Um, I think it probably has. So we'll, we'll wind up and we'll see you next time. But uh, what do we talk about next time? Probably just more books, I imagine. Probably just more books, yeah. maybe uh, maybe a few films yeah. as well. I'll, um, I'll try to get to a few. I know that uh, I've got to go along and see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. My son says that um, uh, he liked number one, didn't like number two, but he thinks number three is... Probably the second best of them. Yeah, so okay. again, Maybe the one odd numbers three count, seems yeah. seem to be the ghost, yeah. the odd numbers. Yeah. So I'll go along and uh, uh, have a look and Let see what know. it's like yeah, and report back. Very good. And uh, there's a couple of other, couple of other interesting films floating around which I'd like to have a look at, but I will uh, not mention those in case I don't actually get to them. So right. uh, I'll uh, talk talk about them if I can uh, see them in the next couple of weeks. No worries. All right, David. Okay. I'll catch you next time. Yep. Okay. See you, See you then. Bye. Bye.